Welcome to episode 40 of the PharmExec podcast. I'm Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of PharmExec Magazine and our podcast host. PharmExec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. On this week's episode, our guest is Janssen's Company Group Chairman of Europe, Middle East and Africa Operations, Chris Sturkins. Chris talks about his current outlook on the global pharma industry, how his finance background helps him lead Janssen's EMEA region, digitization, and a talent development program he headed. This week's episode is sponsored by Fingerpaint. Let's take a break to hear a quick word from our sponsor before we play Chris's interview. Roses are red, violets are blue. These colors are cliche. We can do it differently for you. At Fingerpaint, we can help you connect with the market using a new approach, a new color that no one has ever seen before. Fingerpaint, never paint by number. Hello, podcasters. Today, Lisa Henderson, our editorial director, and I will be interviewing Chris Sturkins, company group chairman of Janssen's Europe, Middle East, and Africa operations. Chris interviewed with our European editor, Julian Upton, at the 17th annual Patient Engagement Eye for Pharma event earlier this year, which took place in Barcelona. And you can actually watch that interview at farmexec.com. So we loved what Chris had to say, and we wanted to learn a little bit more about his current outlook on the global pharma industry. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Thank you. Hello. Good to be here. Thank you. Good. So um, your background includes your being a CFO, and we haven't spoken to many CFOs who have transitioned into general management. So we were wondering if you could tell us how your finance background helps you succeed in your current role heading up business in Janssen's EMEA region. Yeah, happy to do that. I think actually where it started is that the role gave me um, a unique opportunity to get into the the general management role because I had made a a career in finance, was there for 17 years, and in my last role as CFO for EMEA, I was doing that for quite some time. I had a, a big exchange of bosses, and I always had that willingness to go to general management, but because of the overlap with bosses, I was asked to stay. And I thought after a number of years, well, I've I've seen all the technical aspects of the job. Um, I'm losing time. But eventually when I did get the chance, when one of those last bosses said, I'll I'll give you a chance, but you'll have to take a risk on on your career, as I'm taking a risk on you is meaning you'll have, you lose your European board position, you have to take a pay grade cut, but you'll see that you'll actually uh, catch on. If you if you catch on with the business aspect, you'll progress faster than other people. And I thought at that point, well, now you're trying to sell me sell me the role, but I I was keen to do it, so I said, okay, fair enough, I'll take the role. And I eventually found out later that he was right, and I think it had to do with the fact that as a CFO, I had the exposure to very, very senior leaders more than maybe some of the other business leaders because J&J functions really in that tandem um, managing director and finance director. And so I had the opportunity to work with very smart, visionary leaders so intimately in my CFO role that it actually prepared me probably better 
to see how they are uh, strategized, to see how they really diffuse difficult situations. And, and I thought, I, I, I think I made that my own uh, by having that, let's say, that privileged exposure to these people. The other thing about the CFO role was I got to see the whole world. I got to see all of the complexities of J&J because finance took me basically everywhere which I think was another advantage that I had over other business leaders. But, but just to be fair, I still notice today often that there are parts of the business that I had less experience with than people growing up in sales and marketing. And, and one of the things I always do is I have to spend less time on finance because my analytical skills um, have helped me tremendously there. And, and of course, the P&L doesn't have much secrets for me as it might do for other business leaders. And I use that time in order to make sure I surround myself with people who did grow up on the sales and marketing side and really can compensate for specific experiences that I might not have. So it always comes down to the fact that don't bias to, to what, uh, towards what you know best, but make sure you invest a lot of time in those areas where you have less experience and, and that you compensate by working closely with people who, who can support you in that part. So. So I think that's a little bit of a summary of how I got where I am and, and how specific things from the finance function helped me to succeed in a different way than maybe other people growing up in different parts of the business. Yeah, that's true. I, I appreciate your insights. They're very interesting. Thank you so much for that. Um, we're going to switch gears then and go into um, drug pricing, which is, you know, the hottest topic I think around right now, but I was wondering what your views were, what you could tell our audience, what you think the global pricing issues companies will face in these next few years and how should they address them, address them and then maybe specifically what your pricing philosophy is. Well, I think you're absolutely right, Lisa, in pointing out that it's probably one of the biggest challenges that we face as an industry and, and, and coupled to, to pricing also reputation along with that and i think um well first of all i it, it's triggered also by circumstances i think uh, what triggers this is that regardless of where you are in the world i don't think there's any single government that doesn't face budgetary challenges and and within the budget healthcare of course takes a, a, let's say increasingly bigger share as we all get older as demographics change as as treatments get better and it also becomes more and more complex to find new and innovative medicines as we go into really difficult parts of science. So you put it all together and you come up with the fact that the model is probably running to its limitations. And even though I do believe that the way we price our medicines is responsible and is fair, there's a clear perception from other stakeholders that that is not the case. And, you know, uh, perception becomes reality. I think we need to challenge ourselves and say, okay, if, if, it's, if it's not accepted the way we do it, we actually have to make changes. And the philosophy that we apply, and we've been doing it uh, for a number of years, and we're not unique in that, but I think we've been a front runner, is to make sure you have to be able to demonstrate the value of the medicines that you bring. And, and I know that value becomes more and more of an eroded term and that everybody might have a different definition of what value means for, for him or her. But I think it's, it's really important that you come to a common understanding and a common, let's say, alignment to what value really is. And it starts for us always with the premise that whatever medicine we bring has to be better than the gold standard out there. If not, if you're just going to be a me too, if it's just marginally better, 
well, we believe you don't, you don't deserve your place in the marketplace anymore. You actually have to have a transformational medical innovation to bring. And it's not just by our own perception, the science, and the, and, but also being perceived as, as such by, uh, the, let's say, the healthcare providers and the patients themselves as well. So if you come to that kind of an understanding, Obviously, there also needs to be a reward for innovation because if, if you don't reward for those kind of innovation, they will come to a quick standstill. And we're working increasingly with different stakeholders, uh, with physicians, with payers, but also with patients to say like, okay, what would really be uh, a demonstrating meaningful value when we come with the next oncology medicine or hematology medicine or the other therapeutic areas that we work in? So it starts with having undisputed agreement on the value that your medicine brings and then you can start thinking about how you should be rewarded for that but that's that's basically our philosophy excellent thank you so with your experience could you elaborate on some of the current challenges and opportunities for pharma in the emea region yeah, and I think some of the challenges or opportunities are probably not unique to EMEA, but they, they apply to, I guess, every part of the world. And, and we touched upon one of them. I think pricing and reputation go hand in hand. And I think reputation is, is really something that, that we have to work hard on. Personally, I don't think we deserve the reputation that we have right now. But I'm also fair enough to say that maybe some of the things or how we approach things in a, a not so distant past might not have been exactly the way uh, we we should have done things. So, so um, that is definitely one thing. I think uh, pricing comes along with reputation, transparency as well, transparency around pricing, but also transparency on clinical trials and other aspects of our business. So I think we have to get better about that, communicate better about that, be more open on, on how our business model works. Uh, so those are clearly challenges, and, and as I already mentioned, you couple that to the, to the challenges that other stakeholders, especially payers and governments have with healthcare budgets, you know, that really represents a worldwide challenges, and I think it's also increasingly taking place in the U.S., where uh, certainly under the Trump administration, oncology pricing is, is now also something that is really being uh, put on the forefront of, of things to, to look at how, how they can be changed. What do I see? I mean, others might see things like the emergence of technology and digital making their inroads into healthcare as a challenge. I'd like to see it as an opportunity because I think it will offer unique ways on how we can serve patients and physicians better going forward. I think with the entrance of digital and technology, there's so much more in our R&D processes that we can do, but also in our commercial business, only uh, just just to, to highlight only one aspect the fact that we we and other players will now have uh, tremendous access to data real world data of, of how medicines actually work in a real world setting among large populations is going to give us unique insights on and the value that medicines bring and and you know i i see that whole challenge of pricing and and, and the concept of value, I see that go hand in hand to what digital and technology can bring with really uh, accessing data, making sure that data connect with one another and, and deliver unique insights that can, that can demonstrate value way beyond what we, can, what we can prove in clinical trial settings. 
That's true. You know, once this technology gets sorted out and then you tie it to the value and you kind of have everybody's on the same page, you know, then it becomes a little bit with that transparency, it just becomes a little bit, the conversation becomes more elevated. So, you know, that's really interesting. Thanks for um, pointing that out. So for biopharma companies, when it comes to entrepreneurship, what do you think are the main differences between the United States and Europe? Well, I'm probably generalizing, but I think some of the things that would come to mind is I think the the challenge, and it's not the same across all of the markets in EMEA, but if you would just on an aggregated level take EMEA and compare it to the U.S., I think it is access to venture capital. I, I, I think it's the whole mindset about entrepreneurship and it's um, so that is much less developed in um, in EMEA versus US and not just related to healthcare you see that as well if you look at uh, if you look at the modern technology companies and you see where they actually emerged first or are emerging you know the big players are there first and foremost the US where it basically started in Silicon Valley now about 30 years ago, you see also China uh, really as an emerging powers, and you see much less of that in EMEA. I mean, the examples that would come to mind, you can, you can count them on, on, on one hand, is, is companies like Spotify or Airbnb. But beyond that, there's much less going on than in these other markets. And I think the main difference is, is that entrepreneurial climate, Lisa, that you already referred to, the access to venture capital. And I think the overall culture of innovation, which is much more um, developed. And, and there's a different philosophy about that in the US and in markets like China, where, where, where risk-taking is seen much more as, um, as something that is being rewarded if you do well and less, well, punished might not be the right word, but, but there's less negative consequences if things do not work out in markets like China and, and the US. It's a different mindset. And I think, again, as I started the answer, I think it's, of, of course, too much of a generalization, but I think it pinpoints to where I believe the main differences are. Great, thank you, Chris. Kristen has some questions for you now. It's true. <laughs> Chris, you headed a talent development program for emerging leaders. So could you describe what that entailed and some of the key ideas that you shared as part of that? Yes, let me just start by saying, look, I think for every leader, uh, I think the biggest legacy that anybody can can leave behind, that's also how I judge my people and, and that's also how I want to be judged. Of course, the results are important and you have to deliver on those. But I think the true legacy that any leader can leave behind is what have you done in order to secure uh, the next generation of leaders to be ready for the challenges that they take. And at some point when I was responsible for what we call mid-sized markets, and, and just to quickly define that mid-sized markets was everything that was non-G5, so not the, the five big markets and not the emerging markets. After having led one of the largest G5 markets, Germany, where I basically knew everybody, I felt that in these smaller markets, which was a cluster of countries like Benelux, Nordic countries, Switzerland, Austria, you name it, I felt I did not have enough access to the, let's say, the, the up and coming leaders beyond my leadership team. So I said, in order to address that, let's start a kind of a leadership program where we get access and get to spend time with them. And that's 
how it started. And I think the success of that program was twofold. Uh, first of all, I made sure my whole leadership team was part of that. I said, look, leadership development programs are only going to be rewarding if we invest our own time and energy in that. And so on a number of modules, we took uh, these emerging leaders apart for three days we i mean we were, were just in isolation and we spent from morning to evening because i always say you know everybody can be at their best behavior and and can prepare very well for a lunch or a, or whatever or a presentation but if you really spend three days with them you know you really are going to see who actually stands out and on the other hand they also are going to see how we act as leaders so so that really was uh quite a successful program for, from both sides and I, I copied that as well and I think the other big success factor of it is you know it's not about big presentations we usually put one topic on and it could be anything about our credo as J&J &J or uh, part of, of our leadership principles and we just start a dialogue without any slides and we see where the conversation is going um, and, and we see what people bring and, and the less the script that you make, I think the more positively we've been surprised and and the choices we have made based on spending the time on those leaders have been extremely positive. I think we have a success rate of over 90% of people that we identified very early that we took a risk on and, and put into bigger roles before having checked all the boxes. And like I said, nine out of 10 really, really do well. And so I've, I've kept that going. And, and I think it's, it's, for me personally, a very rewarding program. But everybody else who goes through that uh, rates it as unique, rates it as, as having great access to, to the senior leaders. But it's, it's reciprocal because the same for me and, and my team, just to get to know people much better than you would in any other format. So, so uh, yeah, that's, that's been the success of it. And, and, and yeah, we'll, we'll continue that on because it's, it, it really delivers. It does. It sounds like a really beneficial program on both sides, you know, so that's really cool that you guys have that. Um, how does innovation play into shaping a company's culture, do you think? Well, I think it's an essential part, but that being said, it's also a very hard part because innovation is is difficult in that way that you have to challenge the status quo and, and you have to be open to change. And most people are change averse. Uh, it's, it's not in our nature. I sometimes jokingly say the only person who actually likes a change is a wet baby. And there's something to that. <laughs> so you have to make sure you create an environment where innovation and, and entrepreneurship can thrive. And again, that's, that's difficult, especially also as just like many other companies, we move much more to a matrix environment. And in a matrix environment, you can actually hide away. And so some of the things that we, we say, some of the principles is, you know, you have to push risk where it belongs. Meaning, and, and it's, it's, it's actually a statement from our, our scientific leader, but I think it, it really determines or, or says very much what we're all um, standing for is he always says you take the risk I'll take the blame meaning you actually have to protect people um, from that they if they are taking a risk and it might not be work out there should not be a negative consequence because you know it is really uh, important to to try new things and and again that's that's hard to do so so that pushing risk where it belongs meaning uh, senior manager uh, management owning that is is an important thing but it also comes with some behavioral things uh, you you have to have a willingness to experiment but you should be doing that in a highly disciplined manner i always say let's try something new there's only two conditions if it doesn't work 
it has to fail early and it has to fail cheap. We cannot take the whole company down with trying something, something new. And, you know, um, we have to make sure that in that environment, we act as or we create an environment that is psychologically safe where people can try new things, can speak up, can challenge the status quo. But we also have to be brutally candid where we are willing to, to tell it like it is. Uh, and again, I, I think it's easier said than done, but we're working very hard on, on trying to approach it that way. And our CEO, Alex Gorski, said this year, you know, we need to act like a 133-year-old startup. And, you know, that is actually a contradiction in itself almost. But it comes down to really creating that environment and, and creating agility in, in a company our size. That's very hard. So, so having that mindset that I just dis- described about where risk belongs and then creating also an environment and an ecosystem where you allow risk-taking and innovation to thrive, that's what we need. And you know what? I think we, we've done pretty pretty good at that so far. We should not be complacent and not arrogant about it, but we've been working along those principles for the last 10 years in the farm group, and, and it, it really paid off very, very well. So I think, uh, I think we found that kind of a balance between being a very complex, big-sized company, but yet still applying some of those agile, innovation-driven mindset that you find in, in young startup companies. That's really great. Thank you. I'm wondering, you know, um, part of innovation, I think, is the digital. So how do you think digitization in healthcare impacts the future of the industry? Well, one thing is for me is clear. We just did a, a kind of a preceptorship in uh, around San Francisco, uh, visiting uh, a number of tech companies and startups. And, and one of the things that became clear and was also our theme for the last year and a half is that as a farm company or a leading farm company that is based on innovation, we cannot wait on the sideline until the dust settles on how technology and digital will actually make inroads in in our business and then decide how we're going to work. I think we need to take that journey on right now. And as I was already pointing out uh, before in the question on Lisa, I think there's huge opportunities with digitization. Uh, Obviously, you can immediately start thinking the applications in in R&D, you know, where uh, the the immediate benefits of of, uh, concepts like machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence are making their inroads, uh, but also other things like blockchain, where you can really set up clinical trials in a way uh, that is much more secure in every step of the way, which is important as it involves patients. You can have uh, synthetic control arms where you use really uh, artificial intelligence as a comparison to what you try to demonstrate. It's very clear in R&D. I think it's a no-brainer and we're clearly starting to deploy that. But also on your go-to-market models, there's clearly um, big influences. I spoke about the importance of real-world data in everything that we do, but you can also envision, and we're running pilots that, you know, we all, for for us, it's always um, a key question. How do you interact with your key stakeholders? And let's take the physician. How do you interact? How do we know how the physician likes to to interact with us? Is it face-to-face contact? Is Is it email? Is it congresses? It's a mix of all of those. And where in the past we used to rely on, um, let's say, mostly the experience of the sales reps and the medical science liaisons who interact with the physicians. There's always like this human element. Now we are running pilots where we use artificial intelligence and 
and really make it almost a digital twin, if you like, of the HCP. And we use artificial intelligence based on the physician's behavior to, to really come up with uh, how to best interact. And we haven't really come to the end of the pilots, but at least the leading indicators that we see seem to be very, very promising that this is also where digital technology are going to have a major impact on how uh, we do that. And I even even talked about the patient, but certainly also when it comes to the patient, technology and digital will, of course, open doors that previously were shut for us. Excellent. So, Chris, I just have one more question for you. How do you see the role of patients as stakeholders changing? What has caused this shift, and then how can companies use this to their advantage? Well, let me start with, uh, with the middle part of your question. I think what caused the shift is, of course, uh, the emergence of uh, the internet and social media. Um, you, you look at patients today, and they are much more informed about their disease, their condition, their options than they were ever before, because the internet, of course, offers... Um, unique access to information that we we never used to have before that emerged. So so that that is one one uh, part. The other part is of course social media. Patients are much uh, more virtually connecting with one another and become as such a much more vocal stakeholder as well. Much more informed, much more vocal. Patient advocacy has of course together with social media, risen to a, to a very high level. And so they are a, a critical, a much more important stakeholders to take into account. But I see that as very positive. In our credo, the patient actually comes first. And I think that's also where he or she belongs. Because in the end, the patient is the ultimate beneficiary or should be the ultimate beneficiary of what you try to accomplish with your medicines. And you do that, of course, through uh, other stakeholders. But the end user, the one who actually determines whether a medicine is beneficial, is the patient. And as such, we also start working in different ways with patients that we ever did before. I think we, we always saw the importance of patients, but we were held back in how we could interact. And uh, of course, uh, Kristen, we are a highly regulated industry. We cannot go directly to patients as, as other stakeholders can, but there are other ways that we can work together. And so increasingly, we start involving patients, not just on, um, let's say, experiences once they use the medicine, but also on how we develop the medicines. And an interesting um, fact is that one of our latest medicines that we are about to that we just launched a few months ago in the US, but that we are about to launch across Europe is a, a new treatment, the first uh, new treatment in many, many decades uh, for treatment-resistant depression. And it's actually the formulation or the way we use it is through a nasal spray. And the idea of the nasal spray was by was actually instilled by having patients' involvement in early phases of the R&D process where they suggested that idea based on previous experiences with medicines. And we pursued that route. And, and in the end, we, we came up with that medicine that is now being administered through a, a nasal spray. So it's just one example. We, we have many more examples. But, you know, patients in the end are the best place to really give a qualitative judgment on what what they expect from a medicine to do. So the better we can interact with them, uh, the better it is for us. And, and of course, digital and technology is clearly helping us with that. But it's also great also now that increasingly across Europe, uh, patients also are at the table when it comes to assessing the value of a medicine. And, you know, again, as a transformational medical innovator, you know, we should be held by what 
the value our medicines bring and who's better placed, as I mentioned before, in addition to physicians and payers to have a voice around the table to tell you what the medicine should be doing for and, and how we should be rewarded for the innovations that we are aiming to bring every day. So, so from that point of view, I'm only, I'm only very pleased about the emergence of, of a patient as, as, a, well, as a more important stakeholder than ever before. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, uh, we've covered a lot of ground with you today, and I really appreciate all your insights from, you know, your background, um, you know, in finance and then touching on the pricing and the challenges, innovation, um, digitization. That's interesting to hear about your pilot programs. And, of course, the change with patients, you know, you've been in pharma for a while, and that's definitely probably one of the largest areas of change. And I really liked your funny quote about no one likes change but a baby, a wet baby. That is hysterical. And I'm going to use that in the future. <laughs> but thank you, Chris. Thanks for being with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Finger paint. Never paint by number. Find us at fingerpaint.com. And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from Pharma Execs. Hi, my name is Chris Turgens and I'm heading up Janssen Europe, Middle East and Africa on a commercial business. And my leadership tip for everyone is, you know, you don't see me right now, but I always wear these kind of two euro bracelets. Uh, they could be, be made in India or whatever. And, and I do that as a rem to remind me that I should never be completely corporatized. So I always wear something that reminds me like that doesn't fit to the corporate picture. And I like that quote by Oscar Wilde. They said, you know, just be yourself because everybody else is basically taken. And, and that's how I like to do it. I don't want to copy anybody else. I mean, I'd like to. Uh, take lessons from other leaders, but I but I always try to make them my own. So in whatever you do, just be yourself. Who you are got you to where you are, and will continue to make you successful. And and that's the first and and the most important advice I give to everyone who asks me about that. So don't lose track of being yourself and and being authentic. And that to me is key. So that that would be my my leadership advice. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's PharmaExec podcast sponsored by Fingerpaint. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the PharmaExec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at PharmaExec.com, on Twitter at PharmaExec, on Instagram at PharmaExecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of PharmaExec its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email Editorial Director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mmhgroup.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mmhgroup.com.